My name is Tyler Johnson. Um, we are starting a series in the book of Exodus this morning. So you know if you're new and if you've been around a while, you know this, but we tend to just teach through books of the Bible. It's not an all the time thing, but it's a most of the time thing. And there's a lot of reasons we do it. There's a lot of ways to teach the Bible. Um, but one of the reasons we do it is to try to promote in all of us, which means in you individually as well, Bible engagement. And I love that word engagement because there's actually all kinds of research that's been done in the last 14 to 15 years around the world um, on Bible engagement. And those who engage the Bible regularly, it's actually come out that four times a week, at least right around four times a week, that the percentages of high struggles go down dramatically and the percentage of positive things like families remaining unified, being a good worker at work, the decrease in anxiety, decrease in things like debilitating depression. It doesn't mean those who read the Bibles aren't depressed and don't struggle with anxiety, but it's amazing the benefits of it. And there's a reason for that. The word of God is the word of God. The Bible says it's living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it has the ability to pierce and go right after your thoughts and intentions. It's like the best self-reflection tool there possibly is. But the beauty of it is, is it doesn't bring about self-reflection and self-awareness by getting you to turn in on yourself alone. It gets you to do it by turning to the God of the universe. It's incredibly powerful. That's why the Bible says it's a light to our feet. It's a lamp to our path. That at these moments of darkness when we don't know what to do, the Bible presents it. So we're going to enter into the book of Exodus for about 16 weeks until we hit Advent, which is the time of preparation unto Christmas. And there's something I want you to know about the Word of God as well. The Word of God in the book of Exodus gives us the opportunity to talk about this is both a record and a tool. By record, I mean it records actual events that happened in real history. It's a record of historical events that give meaning to history. So as you'll see in this chapter today, the relevance of the Bible into the current world is profound because the Bible understands humanity. So the Bible is a record of actual events that give meaning to history, but it's also a tool. We already kind of alluded to this. It's like a tool that shapes and forms us the way God wants us to be. His desire for all of those who believe is to be conformed into the image of his son Jesus. And it does that not just for us individually, but for us as a church. Because just like we sang, he loves us too much to leave us here. He has bigger plans for us. So when we enter into a book of the Bible, the desire is to introduce the book. And I kind of wrestled with what's the best way to do the introduction and concluded that if I spent five to six minutes introducing it, I wouldn't do one twentieth as good of a job as this video will. So this is from a project called Join the Bible Project. Remember that. I'll refer to it afterwards. This is just under a six-minute video introducing the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus. So watch this. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. 
Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity, he brutally enslaves them, and he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist, so he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry, and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. 
even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great, but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. So that's a pretty good introduction. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, that you'd speak to us now. Um, God, do what only you can do. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up and apply uh, the words that give life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how many of you have ever been to a doctor or a medical facility and seen the pain point chart? You know what I'm talking about? Like on a scale of 1 to 10, it looks like this. How many of you guys have seen that before? Right? So there's no pain, discomforting, distressing, intense, utterly horrible, unimaginably unspeakable. Right? They'll use these a lot, like at Phoenix Children's Hospital, but they'll use them in other places just to get you to go on a scale of one to 10, and they put faces and colors to them. But it begs the question to me of like, at what point on that scale does the pain actually make you go in? What do you think? And then at what point on the scale does it actually make you do something? Because it's only when a pain point is felt that substantial change can come about. I mean, you can have little pains and never do anything about them and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse, but there's a certain point on the scale where the pain point gets felt at such a level that we change. When I go through my Instagram feed, I keep coming across these um, workout shorts that have this phrase on it that says, nothing changes if nothing changes. Exodus chapter one is the entry of a pain point, a God-ordained entry of a pain point. The first six verses speak about how Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel end up in Egypt, even though Joseph was already in Egypt. Then, verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers of that generation. And then verse 7 shows that there's actually quite a bit of comfort amongst the Israelites in Egypt. But the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, this verse brings up echoes, very clear echoes, of the commission that God gave to the original human beings to be fruitful and multiply, to expand and get stronger, to rule and subdue the earth that God had made. So now the Israelites are out of their homeland, they're not in the promised land, and they're multiplying. They're well fed, and because they're increasing greatly, they're also well in bed, right? So they're well fed, they're well in bed, and something happens 
when we're comfortable. There's a reality that when things are going really, really well for us and all around us is going well, that's a good thing. They're doing what God has said, but so oftentimes we begin to love the gifts rather than the giver. When things go well, we tend to forget God, and when we forget God, we forget other people. We can begin to look beyond or presume upon these foundational principles that God always had for his people to represent him, that we would love God with everything we have, and we'd love our neighbors as ourselves. When that begins to happen and we look beyond and we begin to forget the main things because we're loving the gifts rather than loving the giver of the gifts. And it's disordering our own lives and our families and the communities that we're around. God loves us too much. We just sang these words. He loves us too much to leave us there. So he sovereignly enters in a pain point. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king in Egypt. There arose a new king over Egypt. The one who did not know Joseph. Now, why that's important is Joseph, by the Spirit of God and by God's revelation, encountered suffering, ends up in Egypt, and then by God's design, elevates himself, finds favor with that Pharaoh, that king, and in the end is, in, is able to extend mercy to his family, which brings all the Israelites into Egypt. But now a new king assumes the throne. And you say, well, wait a minute, Tyler, you just said that God introduced a pain point. Well, he did, because Daniel chapter 2 says that God is the one who appoints kings and the one who removes kings. Now, once this experience of the new Pharaoh coming on the scene who didn't know Joseph brings about horrific results, he says to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many. They're too mighty for us. Come, let us. It's very interesting that this king who's a ruler over all of Egypt, which includes the Israelites, now speaks not with the Israelites in ears view, but to his people alone, to my kind. He says, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and escape from the land. So what is it inside of this Pharaoh that leads him to this? Like if you were going to look at those verses we just read and you said, what is it that's driving him to this? The simple word is fear which leads to anxiety, which gives him a view of the world, because fear causes us to do foolish things, which gives him a view of the world that's scarce. It's a scarcity mentality that's birthed out of fear. And scarcity is a lie, it's a myth. Does the word myth mean truth? No, it means it's a lie. So look at this, there's a myth of scarcity and a liturgy of the abundance in the Bible. The myth of scarcity, the lie of scarcity is that others are a threat. It's driven by anxiety, which is driven by fear. Anxiety is the result of deep-seated fear and fear is a liar. 
Now, I know you may stop, and this is important to delineate different kinds of fear. There's kind of fear that comes from fight, flight, or freeze, that a real danger, right? So if a mountain lion ran in right now and started running at me, there's a rightful fear that God's designed that's like run out the back door, right? And all I got to do is outrun a few of you, and they, he gets you, them first, right? So that's a rightful fear. But fear that we're talking about here that's deep-rooted in a view of the world that it's scarce, leads to control. It leads to, I'm going to trust human, my strength, what I can control. I'm going to put the pieces in place because I'm scared, I have anxiety, and most of the time, it looks strong. But in fact, Pharaoh sitting on this throne is just a scared little kid. He's terrified that his comfort and his conveniences and his safety and his security is going to be taken away. So it leads him to control. It leads him to deep amounts of greed and ultimately to domination. You see this right after. Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, that's the Israelites, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread. As the Israelites grew, the fear that resided in Pharaoh spread to all of the Egyptians and it led to hatred. They dreaded these people. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, we've used this phrase, God loves us too much to leave us here. God enters a pain point in the midst of Israel's comfort, convenience, their safety and security, because he had something more for them. And he moves a king on the throne who's rooted in fear that leads to anxiety, that's all about his greed and control and now domination, because they were getting big. And so you must ask yourself the question right now, let me pause and just say this to everybody in this room and to us collectively as the people of God. It's so easy to hear a story like this and watch a video like we watched and here's big, bad Pharaoh. And to begin to point the finger at these wicked, evil, awful rulers and oppressive people, and we should but cliches are cliches for a reason. And I remember learning in athletics this reality of if you point the finger at somebody, you simultaneously have three more pointing back at you. Or the way the... Now, some of you are like, huh? Okay, just think about it. Point a finger, right? There's three more. One, two, three, pointing back at you. It's a good line, right? Well, the Apostle Paul says it like this in the book of Romans. You who judge another person, show yourself a sinner because you yourself do the very same things. Folks, this is our culture. And it doesn't mean then you go, well, everybody's bad. We have to call oppression, oppression. We have to call scarcity mentality, scarcity mentality. The reality of people in our culture today. Remember we said the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. 
We live in dark times that are very confusing, that we go, I don't know what next week holds. For that matter, I don't know what tomorrow holds. So we root ourselves in the word of God. We look at the book of Exodus and the book of Exodus tells us about real historical events that give meaning to history even today. And we go, that which rests in Pharaoh rests in leaders today. That which rests in Pharaoh lives in his birth, that of Pharaoh, lives in you and it lives in me. Right now, there are parents who out of anxiety and fear for your children have led yourself to human control. Your anxiety has led you to greed within your home and it leads you to forms of whatever they may be of domination. That's true in the workplace, it's true in the home, it's true in marriages. And we must call oppression, oppression, and we must realize that the root of oppression and the root of narcissism being fixed on yourself is deep-seated insecurity because we were never meant to trust in ourselves. That's why the psalmist said, some trust in horses, some in chariots, the modern-day version, some trust in jets and military budgets, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Scarcity mentality is not the worldview of the Bible. The worldview of the Bible is a liturgy of abundance. A liturgy of abundance. Here's the truth, the truth of the matter. Liturgy means repetition over and over and over again in the Bible and in history. God shows himself to be a provider. This is the phrase Jehovah Jireh, which is a name of God in the Bible. God is in his nature a provider. When we fear that there won't be enough, he proves time and time and time again, I will provide. God is in control when things feel out of control and anxiety makes you, us, our nation, our world think we've got to control this. We should know, no, God sits on the throne. There's a king that's above every king. There's a Lord that's above every Lord. God is in control of world events and in control of our home and in control of your career. And he promises to provide. This is why Jesus says you can't serve both God and mammon, which means stuff. Relax. God sits on the throne. He rules the world 24-7, 365 days of the year. He doesn't take a day off. Relax. God will provide. And God takes even the small stuff. Remember Matthew 6 of loaves and fishes. And Jesus takes it, blesses it, breaks it, and gives. He provides. That's what we believe. Because that's what's true about the character of God that God wants to show. He doesn't want us to trust stuff. He wants us to trust him. And this is why he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of this stuff. All of these things will be added unto you. So the king of Egypt, verse 15, says to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua, he says to these Hebrew women, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, see and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, 
kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, modern day application. God's about life. Fears about death. The spirit inside Pharaoh, a pharaonic spirit, is actually a demonic spirit. It's the language of the devil. Fear is the language of the devil. Love is the language of God. Killing babies is not the language of love. God's pro-life. This is why he said, I came to give you life and give it to the full. So he tells the king, Pharaoh, the scarcity mentality, in his fear and anxiety, he goes, kill the boys, because if we kill the boys, we'll do away with them. Let the girls live. And he says this to these Hebrew women, but one of the best words in all the Bible, but. But the midwives were strong. It's not what it says. It says, but the midwives feared God. Now, Stop for a minute, because so often in these stories, you'll sit and you'll go, man, a pain point's being entered in upon the Hebrew wives because they're midwives, because they're Hebrews. But now it's personal. It comes to them directly. You will do this. Said by the Pharaoh, the king himself, but they feared God. You know in that moment when he said it, they're going, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Can we say no? But if we say no, we're going to die. Were they scared at some level, rightfully scared, of Pharaoh? Well, sure. I'm sure they felt it on their skin and anxiety boiled and they thought about their future. It was like rolling in front of their face as they were being told to do this. But because they feared God, and the author of the book of Proverbs says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the book of James says, when you're in challenging situations, Ask God for wisdom and he will give it lavishly. So there is no question in my mind that these women fearing God sought God because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and we're to ask the all-wise one for wisdom and they said, Lord, what should we do? And even if it were in a moment, God lavished it upon them greatly, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. So that means there are moments where Romans 13, obey the laws of the land, does not apply. Because there's a king above that king. There's a Lord above that Lord. Because we fear God, we say no to oppression. Because we fear God, we say no to a culture of death. Because we fear God, we can stand strong. We are strong and courageous because we're strong and courageous? No, we're strong and courageous because the Lord, the God of the universe, goes with us wherever we go. I love that. The Bible's so much more fun and interesting than most of us give credit for. Because the midwives fear God, they don't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So what do you think the king does? Like at that moment, this narcissistic, fear-driven, anxiety-ridden, control freak, what does he do? Just go, you know what? You guys are right. <laughs> so the king of Egypt calls the midwives and says to them, now, put this, you know what, the, what he does. Why have you done this? Now imagine what they feel like at that moment. Oh my God, we are gonna die. 
Why have you done this? And let the male children live. So the midwives say, because you're wrong, Pharaoh. That's like what we'd say. Stand up to him. Here's what's crazy. They basically lie. (laughs) Now, I don't know. They sought God. They're like, God, give me wisdom. Say no. No, we won't do it. Why did you not do what I said to do? Lord, give us wisdom and tell us how to answer. The midwives say to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I mean, maybe that's kind of, maybe it's a half truth. Like maybe it's kind of true. So God chastised the women and told them, you liars. It's not what he does. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong because the midwives feared God. Because the midwives feared God, God gave them wisdom and gave them a real time. They were encountering death. They decided to die to themselves and do what was right. And because they feared God, he gave them a real time, real time, in the moment, resurrection. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he did something great for the Hebrews. That's what it just said but he also did something great for them. He gave them families. There's this moment when pain points enter into our life that we want to hide from it. We want to stick our fingers in our ear. We want to act like it doesn't exist. We want to run from it. When the pain point is the mechanism that brings about change, The point when a pain point is felt deep enough, it leads us to change, whether that's in physical fitness, whether that's in our eating, whether that's in our life habits, whether that's in a relationship situation, whether that's in our country. A pain point gets strong enough where you go, I can't do it anymore. And God is behind it saying, my love, my love, my love is too great to leave you here. But his love's so great that he's willing to enter pain into the situation and you say well then what are we to do with our pain well the apostle Paul who deeply understands this says this in Romans chapter 5 verse 3 he says and even more than this not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character In character, produces hope. And hope does not, will not, will never put us to shame. Why? Because God's love fears the language of the devil, loves the language of God, because God's love is being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit when we go, God help, God I need you, God I need wisdom. He's pouring himself into you because of his love. He's pouring more love into you. And what casts out fear, folks? Perfect love casts out fear. Suffering makes us dependent. Dependent brings about God so we can rejoice in our suffering knowing suffering produces endurance. With God, you're stronger. 
With God, all things are possible. Suffering brings about endurance. Endurance brings about character. And character brings about hope. And folks, if we have hope, if we have hope that's rooted in the fear of God, come what may, we stand strong. And come what may is what the Hebrews will need because Pharaoh didn't go, wow, the courage of these women, I should change. No, verse 22, Pharaoh commands all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And the story of the strength of God will continue. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would pour your love abroad in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray right now in this room, there are people debilitated with fear and it's leading them to try to control their lives. God, let your perfect love cast out fear. God, I pray right now, there are people in this room who've built a life of control and domination. God, free them. Let your perfect love cast out fear. There are those in this room who are scared of those kinds of people. God, let them see that they're just deeply insecure, scared children. God, give those standing up under oppression courage because they fear God. Make us like the Hebrew midwives. God, make us like them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.